Ccash and Common Lisp. That's what's on the docket for this episode. My name is Klaatu, I'm your friendly host as always. We're going through all of the software packages installed by default on Slackware Linux, but broadly speaking, these packages are available on any Linux. So whether or not you're running Slackware, you can probably learn something from this tour. We're up to Ccash and Common Lisp, which are distributed in the D for Development series, software series of Slackware. You can find both of these readily available on the internet. They're open source, they're free software. You can download them and try them out yourself. Before we go into the applications themselves, uh, I have listener feedback. So one listener feedback is from Matthias, and he says that I've been mispronouncing Zeitgeist. I think that's how I'm supposed to say it. So he says, here I'm giving support not asked for. And it's true, I did not ask for support on how to how, how to pronounce Zeitgeist. Um, but he says that Zeitgeist, the, the Z should be more like the TS in Tsunami. Now, the problem here is that I don't know for sure that I'm saying Tsunami correctly, really. Um, I've always said it just sort of like Tsunami, S-O-O-N-A-H. M-E-E, Tsunami. So I don't know if there's supposed to be sort of a, a harder Tsunami sound, like a T-S, like a really kind of almost pronounced the T, but not quite. So I, I think, because he also says S as in Susan might do this as well. Now, of course, um, if I was to sort of nitpick that tip, it would be the there are two S's in Susan, and the way that I say Susan, there the, the, the two S's sound different. There's Susan, sort of a, a, or Su, the hard S, and then Zin, almost a Z, Susan. So um, what I'm taking away from this is that it is supposed to just be, rather than a Z, Zeitgeist, I think it's supposed to be more like an S. That's what I'm taking from this, a hard S. So Tsunami, uh, Zeitgeist, Susan, yes. Okay, so thank you, Matthias, for the tips on how to pronounce Zeitgeist. And believe it or not, I also didn't know, I've never, I guess, bothered to look it up, but Zeitgeist is uh, time and spirit. It's the combination of time and spirit. That's the, the words, like Zeit and Geist. That's time and spirit. Zeitgeist. It's the time and the, the, the spirit of the time. So that that's really great. That's very cool. Thank you very much. Um, even though I didn't ask for that, I'm, I'm actually quite open to this kind of trivia. I think it's really interesting. Um, and then the other feedback wasn't really a feedback. It was the, well, in my mind, it was the first official meetup of the podcast. But then I realized that that's not accurate at all. I've met listeners many times in the past. And if if we're calling just meeting a listener in real life a meetup, then surely there have been several. Now, a lot of those meetings have happened at technical conferences, and that's kind of what I think in my mind set this one apart. So last weekend, or the weekend before, I forget, I went into Dunedin, which is a little port city here in New Zealand on the South Island. It is actually, I think, like one of the oldest cities. I mean, it was, it was a very early city. I should know this a lot better because my partner works at a museum and ha talks about this sort of thing all the time. But um, it's a port city, very old. It's a beautiful city. It's probably one of my favorite cities in New Zealand. And I say that knowing full well that I haven't been to that many cities in New Zealand. But I, I'm trying to imagine something that could top Dunedin, and it would be it would be a tough act to follow. And this is because Dunedin has a lot of classical looking architecture. Architecture that I associate with cities that I like, such as, I don't know, Pittsburgh and Detroit and New York, and I think that's it. So Dunedin looks a little bit, um, a little bit like, I don't know, yeah, like Pittsburgh or, or you know, uh, just parts of New York, no, certainly not the skyscrapery parts, like the village, that part, and and that sort of thing. Um, oh, even Oklahoma, interestingly. Oklahoma City actually has some really classic, surprisingly classical, attractive architecture, which you wouldn't necessarily think way out there in the in the West or the Midwest, whatever we call that. Anyway, Dunedin, nice city. You should visit when you can sometime. And so I went into Dunedin uh, at the invitation of a listener named John, and 
John and I met up for coffee appropriately. It was at a museum, no less. So it was a very nice little little cafe setting. And we just sat around and chatted for a while. It was very casual, sort of no great expectations of of I don't know teaching each other fancy linux tricks or anything like that we just we just chatted it was nice it was really quite pleasant he did have a really great story about a pc rescue that he did so he he had he had sort of inherited or or, or acquired you know from a discard pile or, or something um a desktop but it was it ended up being a mini atx case or a yeah it must have been mini atx or whatever the step down from normal size is. So it's it's a relatively small computer case, and he went to put a graphics card into it and then realized that's not going to physically fit. Like, the graphics card is just physically too large for the case. And so what he did was he cut a slot into the case. Like, he physically cut the case with a Dremel or or something similar and and so the he had his his graphics card sort of popping out from that and i thought that was just the the coolest thing cuz i am i don't think i've mentioned this on on this show necessarily but i have been even before i got into linux i have secretly wanted to be a a hardware modder like that that is something that if i had all the time in the world and all the resources in the world to learn something completely different, that's what I would do. I used to watch videos, and this is well before YouTube existed, I think. I used to to watch online videos of people modding their cases, and I just thought it was the coolest thing in the world. I just never really understood how, how, and I still don't. I don't understand physical sort of hacking or physical even just crafting. I, I'm, I'm, that's an area that I'm not really well-versed in at all. So to hear about someone taking a Dremel or, or whatever to a case and cutting out a, 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 a slot for your graphics card to pop out of your, your, your case, and, you know, I mean, there's concerns of dust and all that sort of thing, so it's probably not the best the best hack in the world, but, I mean, it's a hack, and it worked. Uh, apparently, because the my first question, obviously, was how did your power supply handle having a, you know, a beefy... Um, 3D, or uh, not a 3D, uh, like, obviously 3D, but uh, yeah, like a beefy old graphics card attached to it, and apparently he didn't. He had to swap out the power supply, which, of course, that didn't fit in the case either, so it ended up being somewhere else, you know, and it was just, it was this crazy story of, of Frankenstein, truly Frankenstein PC, and that's just so cool. I love that sort of thing. So, anyway, it was a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, if you, dear listener, are ever in New Zealand, or if you live in New Zealand now, then uh, let me know. If you're on the South Island especially, I'm always up to meet in person, given scheduling. I mean, that's the that's the trick, right? I mean, the scheduling thing is, is just so impossible when you grow up and have adult life things happening. You have to really, really plan things out unfortunately. But luckily, this time around, everything aligned and we were able to meet in person. It was a lot of fun. Now let's talk about Ccash, and I'm not going to talk about for the, the, this one for long because, honestly, there's not that much to it. So Ccash, that's C-C-A-C-H-E, Ccash. It is a fast C, C++ compiler cache. It speeds up recompilation by caching the results of previous compilations and detecting when the same compilation is being done again. Supported languages are C, C++, Objective-C, Objective-C++. This is fairly straightforward, to be honest. I don't have a great test script for it, but I think this will get us through. Uh, I've downloaded Jove, the source code for Jove. Jove comes with Slackware, and I've talked about it before on the show, I'm pretty sure. It's an Emacs. It's a lightweight Emacs. So it's uh, it's got a healthy number of C files that we can run that, that we can use as our test our test scenario. Now the default location for cache files for for C cache is in uh, your home directory .c cache. Now that wouldn't exist if you've never used C cache yet, but that's where it's going to put all the cache files. You can adjust that. There's a there's an environment variable or something where you can tell it to put it somewhere else. It's in the man page. I'm just leaving mine in, in, in my home directory. So first I'm going to do ccache-s, which, uh, what's the long form of that? I think it's dash 
actually not dash s at all, show stats. Uh, we will use that in a minute, but not yet. So I'm going to do ccache dash dash clear. That's what I'm going to do. And so that clears my my cache. And then I'm going to do ccache dash dash show dash stats. And this confirms for me. I mean, it tells me some some of the stats for the, that, that have been recorded over the life, I suppose, of, of my time with ccache, all of, you know, like one afternoon. And uh, most importantly, it tells me the files I have in cache currently, which are zero, and the cache size, which is zero. There's also a max cache size limit, which is five gigabytes, which could be set in .ccache slash ccache.conf, which I won't bother doing right now. So um, I'm in Jove, the, the Jove source code. I'll do a make clean, in, uh, first of all, just to make sure everything's cleared out. And then I'm going to do uh, Emacs. I mean, technically I could do Jove, but that might be confusing. But I do. I happen to have Jove installed. But I'm going to do Emacs make file and take a look at their make file. So what I'm looking for here is where it's going to set the compiler. Now, as the man page says, I could just link CC to Ccache, and that would work. But I don't feel like that's the right answer. I would rather just get in here and tell the make file what I want it to invoke. And it looks like I've found it. So it's uh, line 268 specifically, local cc equals dollar sign parentheses cc. Well, instead of that, I'm going to put, I'm going to list my local cc as ccache space dollar sign parentheses cc. And I think I'll also do no, I think that's all I will do. Yeah, just local CC. That looks like what's being used to define my compiler. I could go through and try to find something more specific or, or sets, you know, to make sure I'm getting, I'm setting it everywhere it's invoked or something. But I'm just going to have faith that that'll do it. So I'll save that. And now I can just do a make. I think just make, I think, is the, is the, um, is the command I need here. And why don't I just, in case, do time make. I don't really need to do that, but I'm going to do it just because I can. And so it's building Jove. It took about six seconds, uh, 6.8. So yeah, call it seven seconds to build Jove. And now if I do a ccache-s, or dash dash show stats if you prefer, it tells me that it has two files in cache for a total of 45.1 kilobytes. So now what I'm going to do is I'm going to, do, I'm going to uh, in, in my Jove directory, I'm going to trash asterisk dot O, and then I'm going to trash all of the deliverables. So that's jjove, port serve, recover, teach Jove, uh, set maps, set maps, and actually, you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to make clean. That's what I'm going to do. In fact, why am I doing that manually? Make clean gets rid of everything. Now I'm going to run make again with time, and that runs the compiler again through ccache. And this time it only took six seconds. Now if I do ccache s, uh, it shows that there was a a direct cache hit. There was one direct cache hit. So whatever files were being processed, there was there was one hit. Um, there was. Let me look. Doesn't look like there were any misses. I don't know why that number wouldn't go up. Oh, maybe that's probably when it thinks there's a hit and then realizes that it can't use a cache file. That's probably what that is. Uh, called for pre-processing has not changed. Yeah, so the only stat that is sh uh, that has changed in the ccache dash dash show dash stats is that there was one hit, there are still only two files, and so on. Uh, and, and we shaved off, I guess, about a second off of our... Um, our, our compile time. That's it. That's as, that's as good as it's going to get, to be honest. I could do a bunch of other examples, but they would all reap similar similar benefits. And I think probably there's a test case out there somewhere, I mean, in, in imaginary somewhere, where you could, you would take your code, like Jove, and then you would change something, you, you would do your compile and make sure that a bunch of things got cached, and then you would change some stuff and and observe what was getting hit and what was not hitting and, and seeing the increase there as well. But that, that just seems like a lot of work. So I think this has demonstrated theoretically that Ccache works, 
You can download some source code, send it through Ccache when compiling, which sometimes is the trick, because not all make files are as simple as the one in Jove. But as long as you can figure out how to send that through Ccache, then you can build the project, caching all of the stuff that you're that you're compiling, and then when you recompile for whatever reason, you may very well be able to s- save time during that recompile because you've you've cached some some stuff in the making. Now, as a listener pointed out to me recently, and and if I if I was quicker with searching through Kmail, I would be able to tell you exactly who who that was. I've forgotten the name already. But as a listener has pointed out recently, Make itself is really good at shaving time off of your compile time anyway, because when when a file that should exist doesn't exist or, or that that all that should exist already exists your your make file helps you not recompile that so between make and ccache i feel like developers who are building and rebuilding frequently as they you know as they perfect their program are pretty well set up for you know they they have some some safeguards to sort of protect their time from that agonizing sort of render time i know it's not technically render time but that's what i think of it as it's it's rendering time and and that just it's such an annoying thing where you're just waiting for the 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 program or the computer to compute and it's it's often surprising to me still how long it takes for code sometimes to compile i mean just go compile the the kernel or not the kernel but the kernel modules that's where it usually takes the longest compile that for a while it, it's still it's it's funny to me that that's still a process because the computers now seem so fast and so to witness that wall of text fly by as you're compiling code, you just think, why is it taking this long? Which is, I mean, it's such a such a funny thing to wonder because, I mean, all of this stuff is basically magic. It's so advanced, so cool, that it may as well not even be possible. But it is possible, and yet I still have the audacity to ask why it takes so long. But with, with Make and Ccache, it doesn't have to take so long. Check it out. Not yet. First, go get coffee, then check it out. coffee as well. We're set to go. So let's talk. Let's just chat a little bit. I don't want to get into this too quickly. We have coffee. We may as well enjoy it. Let's chat a little bit about Lisp. I don't know how much you know about Lisp, but I'll give you kind of the quick rundown. It's an old language. It's apparently the second oldest computer language around, right after Fortran. And it was developed in 1958, and people seem to be really fond of Lisp. I mean, people also make fun of Lisp because of the parentheses. If you look at Lisp code, there are a lot of parentheses. It uses it for scoping just to the barest degree. It just uses sco- it, anything it needs to sort of delimit. It's going to do it with a parentheses practically. So it can be a little bit overwhelming sometimes to look at Lisp code because you just start to see nothing but parentheses. Now, to be fair, like most programming languages, its interpreter and compiler, it doesn't care about white space. I mean, Python being the obvious notable exception to that statement but but lisp does not care about white space and so you can have your parentheses on on a separate line just kind of treat them as curly braces if you want it's fine so you you can mitigate the parentheses um issue but lisp itself generally speaking when when you're talking to computer scientists and and fans of sort of programming and programming languages and and concepts they seem to speak of it pretty highly, and one of the big deals about Lisp is that its data structure, which is the the list, in fact, Lisp stands for list processor. So its data structure, basically, it, it just loves lists, and not only does that data structure get used for its output, but it also put it it also gets used for its construction. So a a Lisp statement is a list of list um well technically i think they're called atoms a-t-o-m but uh, you could also just say tokens 
or keywords. They're, they're lists of keywords and associated arguments. And though that those lists are then, they are the source code of Lisp, and they work together to produce lists. But wait a minute, we just had a list, and that was the program. Well, yes, the program is producing more, potentially more program. You know, like it's lists producing lists, and it does it by putting things in lists and by processing that, you know, it's just, it's all lists basically. And apparently that's a super, super powerful mechanism. I don't know why. I don't understand why that's a big deal. And I've done a lot of research online over the past week, especially to try to wrap my mind around the significance of, of the fact that, that Lisp can essentially, they say that Lisp is a program that can write programs or something like that. Um, and I was not able to find a, a brief uh, bite-size example or proof of concept to demonstrate that to me. Now, I understand that so- there are concepts that are very, very advanced, and, and it's d- difficult to kind of sum it up into a Hello World application. I, I totally understand that. I do wish, however that somewhere, 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 someone online could drum up an actual example of, of why Lisp is so, so admired. Because I would love to sort of wrap my head around it. I, I don't feel like I quite understand it. And in fact, I kind of feel like I've been let down a little bit by, by Lisp in general. Like, its, it's reputation was at least for me, it, the reputation was was really, really strong. And upon deeper investigation, I was unable to kind of resolve that reverence with with what I was seeing. And I don't mean this as a critique. It sounds negative, and it's it's it isn't actually meant to be negative. It is actually a question. I am ask I am asking you, dear listener, a question. If you happen to be a person who really understands this stuff. So if you happen to have examples or knowledge about why Lisp is a big deal conceptually, then I would love to be enlightened. And preferably that would be in the form of source code fewer than 100 lines. That might be impractical. That might not be something that you can glean from short. And and I have read that online. Um, I've read that you, you can't appreciate Lisp's brilliance in short snippets because that's not where it comes into play. It comes into play in longer, sort of long form, like, you see why this is beautiful? Well, it's because the flow of this applica- of this of this code lacks such and such, or whatever, I don't know. But I, I was not able to find the, the shining example of why Lisp was so great. And I say that, you know, compared to, for instance, something like Lua, which... I feel the moment I started using Lua, I, I truly, truly understood many of the reasons that it is such a beautifully designed language. Now, to be fair, I was strongly comparing Lua to, for instance, Python, because I was coming to it from, sort of, or through a lens of finding a, an easily teachable application, uh, a programming language. So Lua was, was notable for that, for that reason especially. But it was also, I mean, I also had other stuff to compare it to, Java and Bash and, and C++ to some degree. You know, there were, there were other comparisons that I was able to make even at that time. So, I don't know. Looking at, Li- at Lisp, I, I'm happy to have learned what I have learned so far. That's for sure. And, and I will talk about that process as well momentarily. But I will say that that I, I don't quite feel like I understand its reputation yet. I mean, I understand its reputation for parentheses. That part I understand. The the other part I don't understand is is the is the is the kind of the the design concept behind Lisp that everyone seems to be really excited about whenever they talk about Lisp in a complimentary way. Let's talk really quickly here about my history of Lisp because this may be you as well. So my history with Lisp was mainly derived through Emacs. I knew that Emacs was a a Lisp interpreter of some kind and that there was a, a dialect of Lisp that it used called Emacs Lisp and that you could manipulate Emacs through Lisp. And you see this pretty clearly in your configuration file for Emacs. 
if you start hacking your config file for Emacs, then y you've you've written Lisp. I mean, that's just how it is. It, it is Lisp code. So that's pretty impressive because you realize after a while, you realize that you're reprogramming sort of your your text editor by by writing Lisp code, and you 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 get the meaning of extensible. You know, you really understand what it means to be able to alter the code of the thing that you're running. I mean, sort of. Again, Emacs itself isn't written in Lisp. It is a, a Lisp interpreter, but the code, the source code itself is not Lisp, so it's kind of complex. But you've got Lisp, a dialect of Lisp in Emacs, and if you, if you manipulate your configuration at all in Emacs, by hand at least, not but through the menus, then you've written some Lisp. And if you certainly try to do anything like a minor mode or a major mode in Emacs, you can really, really... I mean that that's basically you'd be programming a like a plugin is what other text editors would probably call it a plugin but Emacs just calls it a mode you you do that in lisp and so then you you might really get into some lisp coding at that point and to that end I purchased an introduction to programming in Emacs lisp by Robert J Chassel and it's a pretty good book 250 pages it got me. It gave me a good introduction to Lisp and got me um, sort of sort of understanding more or less what I was doing with Emacs Lisp. My main problem, I'll call it, although it's not it's not strictly a, a problem, but I mean, my I feel like my main problem with with Emacs Lisp is is a weird mental block of, oh my gosh, if I start really using Emacs Lisp, then I'll have valuable applications that I've written that are hard, with a hard dependency of Emacs. And that's a little bit, for some reason, even though I have Emacs open every day, for some reason that's a little bit of a block for me. I just feel weird when I'm working in Emacs writing Lisp, knowing that that Lisp will never be useful without running a session of Emacs. And I, I don't know why that is. I, I genuinely do not know why I would care, um, and maybe that's something I'll grow out of. Um, I have great confidence in the longevity of Emacs. I don't I'm not afraid of losing access to what I write. It's just for some reason, I guess, maybe the kinds of applications that I'm trying to write right now aren't dependent on Emacs, and therefore it seems weird to make Emacs their dependency. I think that's probably it, actually. Um, at some point, though, maybe I'll be writing something with it that, that makes sense for Emacs. Either way, um, another part of the block for me was a specific sort of to the process of learning Emacs Lisp through this book, it's that every every example, every tutorial in the book, or every example, I guess, is not really a tutorial style, but yeah, every sample and thing called out in the book that isn't general Lisp, like all the functions that they tell you about, well, they're Emacs functions, which, I mean, that makes sense, but unfortunately that also kind of hyper-focuses you, or, or almost tunnel vision you know, it gives you tunnel vision to what you can do with Lisp, which is, well, I mean, I know that I can um, adjust the width of a paragraph with Lisp. You know, you, you, you start to learn, like, really specific, like, text editing tricks within Lisp, but you don't know how to do other things, like, I don't know, um, what, what else might you do with Lisp? I don't know, output, get inputs, <laughs> stuff like that. So it's, it's a little bit strange, I think, in, in that sense. It, it, it gives you this weird impression of Lisp that it is just Emacs. And again, not a problem if you're actually learning, if, if you're trying to hack on Emacs, or, or rather a mode in Emacs or something like that, that's invaluable. It's just that I, th I think I felt like that was too specific for what I was looking for. And so I took a step back, and that's kind of when Lisp started to make sense to me, is when I stepped away from Emacs, counterintuitively and counterproductively probably, but I stepped away from Emacs and started to look at just Lisp itself. So Lisp itself, specifically GNU Common Lisp, that's GCL, and that's what we're looking at in Slackware. GNU Common Lisp, or C Lisp, is the generic Lisp implemented by some GNU hackers, GCL, GNU Common Lisp, and it is as opposed to, for instance, SBCL, which I think is something like Steel Banking Common Lisp, or something weird like that, but it's, it's a good one. It's an open source Lisp, SBCL, it's quite popular. I've, I've used it a tiny little bit. 
but mainly I just stuck with GNU common lisp because that's what I had on Slackware anyway. So that's kind of what I fell into. So common lisp is um, it's it's a it's it's a general use programming language really. It it is just it's a programming language. It doesn't need to ever know that Emacs exists. Although one of the main editors that they recommend for Lisp is Emacs, but interestingly not sort of pure Emacs. There's a environment within Emacs called Slime, S-L-I-M-E, and a lot of people seem to use that for Lisp de- development. But you don't have to, and and I actually uh, didn't really. I mean, I, I edited the text in Emacs, but practically just as as text, and then I would I would run it in the Common Lisp uh, interpreter. So assuming you've got GNU common lisp on your machine because you're running slackware or you've installed gcl on a linux that isn't slackware then we can talk about how lisp actually works so the basic unit of lisp source code is an expression if you're used to emacs you'll have seen that as expr gets referenced a lot so it's an expression and it is written as a list. And a list is, uh, this is what a list in Lisp looks like. Uh, parentheses, and then let's just do, for instance, plus, a plus sign, space, one, space, two, close parentheses. That's a list. We have three items in it. We have a, an operator, the plus sign, and we have two integers, one and two. Now it just so happens that this list, this basic part of, of Lisp, this list surrounded by parentheses that happens that expression is a valid expression in lisp because the first token is a math operator it's specifically it's a symbol the plus symbol which evaluates to a function the addition function and then you have two arguments one and two so if you were to not only is this is a valid this is a valid data structure it's it's a plus sign and a one and a two but you've got this also evaluates to a function, a function that says add one and two together. So if you open up a terminal and run CLISP, you're taken to a GNU common lisp prompt, and you can type, for instance, parentheses plus one space two, close parentheses, hit return, and it it returns three, the number three. And you can kind of see where that would have been derived from. It's It's the plus and then the one and the two. Addition of x and y, or 1 and 2. Now you can do this a similar thing where you do parentheses minus space 1 space 2 parentheses, and that returns negative 1. And you can test other things out too, like how, how, how far down does this go? Well, let's do a parentheses plus space 1 space 2 space 3 space 4 space 5 parentheses. And it gives us 15, which feels about right to me. Can't be bothered to do, actually, no, that is correct. I just did the math, sorry. Um, so there you go, 15. So that's that's the the simplest, for me, that's the simplest kind of example of, of how Lisp is constructed, how a Lisp statement is constructed. That first token in that list is a function name, and then the things after it are the arguments. Knowing that, you basically have everything you need to start constructing Lisp applications, or, or Lisp scripts at least. So, for instance, we know that that first token needs to be a function. So you just need to look up some functions, and you'll you'll be able to you'll be able to write write statements that actually do things. So, for instance, the classic hello world thing would be probably even guess parentheses print space quote hello world close quote close parentheses. There we go. We get hello world and hello world again. So it printed that twice for some reason. And that's the thing about this. So this this Lisp environment is called a REPL, R-E-P-L, which stands for Read, Evaluate, Print, Loop. And for whatever reason, REPL kind of is a little bit more verbose than sometimes we need it to be. So uh, there's a function in Lisp, pretty print. So that's uh, parentheses P-P-R-I-N-T, so P-print, space, hello world, oh, quote, hello world, close quote, close parentheses, and there we get just the output of, of what we're actually after, which is hello world. So that's an easy, an easy, another easy statement. Okay, so of course, if you have um, functions that you can implement, this is a programming language, or rather functions that you can call, uh, this is a programming language, so you you would surmise that you could also create your own functions, and you'd be correct. So to create your own function, you could do, for instance, a parentheses 
defun or defun d e f u n that's a, that's a classic leading word if you if you do emacs configurations at all you know that one you know that one very very well defun and then let's do a um let's call it print me and then we'll give it a parentheses s for string and then and that's of course arbitrary it could be parentheses penguin there now it's parentheses penguin uh and then parentheses p print penguin and then close parentheses not once but twice so we've got parentheses defund print me and then print open parentheses penguin close parentheses and then open parentheses p print penguin close parentheses and then close parentheses because just trust me so there's two parentheses at the end and again yes there are a lot of parentheses in in lisp Luckily, modern editors, including GNU Lisp, uh, Common Lisp, uh, it, 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 it shows you. It sort of like, it takes your cursor briefly back to the, to the parentheses that you're closing. So I could just close, I'll close this once, and I see that it goes to the pprint penguin. I'll close it twice to defund. Close it again, it doesn't go anywhere. So yeah, I only needed two closing parentheses there. Okay, so now, now, now we've got this function. I'm going to press return now, and it kind of echoes back to me. It says print me. So it has defined this function, print me, for, for me. And now I can use it, presumably. And the way that you use it is exactly like you'd use any other function. You just use, you, you open a parentheses, you use the name of the function, print me, and then you hopefully know whether or not you've programmed into your function an argument. And I happen to recall that I did, and I called it penguin. So I'm going to do um, hello, clatu, close quote, close parentheses. And there we go. We got a pretty printed message to me that says hello, clatu. So I've just created my own function with a, with a required argument and then implemented the, the body of the function in parentheses, and then we closed the function. So let's try print me with no arguments. So I'm just going to do parentheses, print me, close parentheses, and it gives me an error. It says eval apply too few art, uh, arguments, zero instead of at least one, given to print me. The following restarts are available. Abort, abort main loop. So this is the weird thing about GNU common lisp, the, the REPL here. It sort of, it acts as a debugger as well. So if you get into that state, you can hit control D to get, D as in delta, to get back to your prompt. Or you can follow the debugging, but I, I'm not doing, not going to talk about that right now. So, um, or at all, it's not something that I've used yet. Uh, so variables, let's talk about variables really quick, because those tend to be important in programming. There are a couple of different ways to set variables, but from what I understand, they practically all resolve to basically being the same now. So I'm just going to use kind of what I'm used to from Emacs configuration files. So the, the one that I'm used to is set Q, which is set quoted. So set Q is the function name, and then we could set Q, oh, parentheses set Q, and then I could create a new variable, so I'll just, I'll name it foo. And in the foo spot, I'll put hello world, close quote, close parentheses, and it echoes back to me, hello world, sort of as a confirmation, I guess, of what I've set that to. And I can check to see what kind of variable foo is with the type p function. So that's just t-y-p-e-p, -E uh, parentheses, t-y-p-e-p, -E space, foo. Uh, and I believe it's a string. So I'm going to write the word string because that's what I'm... Type p doesn't just tell you what kind of uh, data is contained in foo. It makes you guess. And I, I'm not entirely sure of why. It's got something to do with variables and objects and the difference there between. But I, I don't really understand it. But type p foo string um, is going to... This is going to not work. Uh, so I'll hit return. It brings me back into my debugger. And it's telling me that the variable string has no value. Well, I didn't mean for string to be treated as a variable. So what's happening, more or less, is that common lisp is understanding that string is an argument to type p. And in fact, let's even do something like set q bar to 13, close parentheses. So now I've got two variables. I've got foo and bar, foo being a string variable containing hello, and bar being an integer variable 
contain or a, a variable containing the integer 13 is how I should have said both of those. Um, so now I'll do type p again, foo space bar, close parentheses, and now it's telling me invalid type specification 13. So now it's confusing my variable. Oh, I didn't mean, yeah, bar. So it, it evaluated bar and found an integer 13 and is interpreting that as my proposed type of data for foo. So none of that's correct, right? Okay, so the thing about Lisp is that it is constantly evaluating your data. And I think that's part of the reason Lisp is so exciting. I could be wrong. But it is constantly evaluating your data, trying to resolve stuff to other programs, to other, to other runnable code, or other Lisp keywords, essentially. And if you want it to not do that, then you can use the single quote. Once again, if you've ever used an Emacs configuration file, you'll know the single quote. So, we can do parentheses, type p, foo, single quote. So that's just the apostrophe. Um, I was about to say, that's just the apostrophe on the q key, which makes no sense to anybody except Dvorak users, because that's where the apostrophe is on the q, on, on the Dvorak keyboard. So, it's the apostrophe which on the US English keyboard is under the double quotes to the uh, the left of the enter key, the return key. So single quote, and then the word string, and then close parentheses. So type p foo single quote string. And that successfully tells me, well, it returns the letter t, which in this context is representative of true. We can get a false if we want, or a nil in um, Lisp lingo by doing type p foo, let's guess it is an integer. So single quote integer, type p foo single quote integer. That gives me a nil in return. So that's that's not correct. Foo is not an integer. Well, what about bar? Bar should be a single quote integer and that returns t. So type p is kind of nice when you're playing around with Lisp and you need to sort of do a check to make sure that you understand what's actually in your variables and that sort of thing, use the type p function. Just remember to single quote escape, or you know, single quote it so that it's escaped essentially, or ra ra rather such that it is not evaluated. You're excluding that from being evaluated. If for whatever reason you don't like the single quote notation, you can do it the old-fashioned way which would be, for instance, parentheses, type P, space bar, space parentheses, and then the word, the little, the literal word quote, Q-U-O-T-E, space, in this case integer, close parentheses, close parentheses, and then you get true again because now it has, well, technically it has evaluated that parentheses, that sub parentheses, it's evaluated the function quote, which is telling it to surround integer in a protected shell and not to try to turn it into a variable, for instance. So type p is very, very useful while you're still kind of understanding Lisp. Variables in Lisp are, let's call it dynamically typed. Apparently there's some, there's a subtlety there that it's not exactly dynamically typed, I think is what I read, but for all intents and purposes, it's dynamically typed. You don't have to declare when you're creating a variable, what kind of variable you're creating. So for instance, if I were to do a set Q foo 12 and a set Q bar 12, and then a parentheses plus foo space bar close parentheses, I should get 24 back and I do. So it knows that I'm not trying to add the, the, the string foo to the string bar. Now, of course, that does mean that you sometimes have to worry about type conversion. I mean, type conversion happens no matter what, honestly. I mean, people like to say that one language or another doesn't worry about it, or, or rather that you don't have to worry about it because some other, some, some language is smart enough that you'll never have to bother, but that's, I've never found that to be true. So type conversion is a thing that you'll have to do from time to time, but generally speaking, you don't have to think too much about your, your variable declarations. Well, Lisp is called a Lisp processor, so presumably the Lisp goes deeper than just sort of surface syntax. And indeed it does, you can create lists in Lisp. So I'll do a parentheses set Q foo again. No, maybe I'll call it my list. I'm going to call it set queue my list, and then space parentheses list, L-I-S-T, and space um, hello, 
or you know space quote hello close quote space quote world close quote close parenthesis close parentheses so now i have a list and i know this because i can do a type p my list single quote list close parentheses and i get true back so this is definitely a list that i've just created and i created it with the list function it's a pretty pretty straightforward one really and now I can access items within that list with a function called inth. That's N-T-H. N is in November. November Tango Hotel. Inth, and then a number. So let's do zero. We start at zero. And then the name of the list that I want to access, my list, close parentheses, and I get returned hello. Now if I do inth one my list, I get world. Essentially, it's an array. Those are the real, real basics of Lisp. I mean, that's... That's maybe chapter one of a, of a basic lists, a Lisp book. But I, I want to move into something that's actually sort of practical because that's kind of the way I like to, to approach these things. And so let's write a dice roller because those are easy to write, generally speaking, and generally useful, at least to me. I always need a good dice roller. Uh, and this, by the way, is not going to be a good dice roller, um, but it will be a dice roller. So here's what we'll do. We'll open up a file. So I'm going to get out of REPL with parentheses quit, close parentheses, and then I'm going to open up Emacs, open it to a file called dice.lisp, and the first line I'm going to put in uh, hashbang slash user slash bin slash clisp. That's clisp. That's the command to launch the, the REPL that we were just hanging out in. And so I'm gonna, I want to make a dice roller. The use, the, the use case or, or the, the way that I want this to be used, the interface, should be that I should be able to launch this from a bash command line, which is what I'm generally using. You know, I definitely have one of those open. Uh, and then I want to tell it how many sides my dice should have. And then I want a random number from one up to that number of sides. So if I do dot slash dice dot lisp six, I should get one, two, three, four, five, or six. All right, well, I'm going to tell you right now, we're not going to be able to do that. I mean, we could, but it, within the allotted time, we're not going to get that far. What we are going to get is a number, for instance, if I do dice dot lisp, I'll get a number of zero through five. And that, that's, that's because the six in it being processed the way that we're processing it quickly in you know these five lines of code or four lines of code whatever it is um, we're we're not going to allot we're not going to um, account for the fact that six is non-inclusive and everything starts at zero anyway so we'll get zero through five so in real life that's a little bit problematic I would definitely go in there and do a plus one to all of the results and so on but I'm not going to do that right now. all right so I mean it would be super easy, but I'm going to leave that as an exercise for you if you if you want to. Instead, we're going to worry about the actual things that matter, which is first of all, what do we need here? We need a way to get the argument six or or twenty or ten or whatever we tell this dice roller to use as its upper limit. We need to figure out how to get that argument into our script, and that can be tough. It can be surprisingly tough because. Um, Lisp doesn't have any option parsers as such. I mean, it, it does, but, but not, not like what you might hope. Um, and that's okay. I mean, there's, there's extra ones out there that you can download and use. And the, the package manager for common Lisp is called QuickLisp. And you can download QuickLisp and then you can use QuickLisp to install lots and lots of different packages, you know, new functions out there that that you wouldn't have to write. And that can be really, really useful. So check out QuickList, but that's not what I'm going to do here. I'm just going to, I just want to do this pure list quickly and uh, with the tools that we're given. So um, this is neat. You can do set Q, well, parentheses, set Q space, and then we'll call it um, user put. That's, again, that's arbitrary. I could use anything. I could use the word penguin. I could use banana, it doesn't matter, whatever. User put is what I'm calling it. And then asterisk, this is not arbitrary, asterisk, args, close asterisk, close parentheses. So set queue user put, we know what that means. It means we're creating a variable 
that we're naming userput. And then the, the data that we're dumping into userput are the arguments that, was, that were used when launching this script. And so the asterisk args asterisk is a special keyword in Lisp that pulls in the arguments and puts it into a data structure. And maybe we'll maybe we we can learn what that data structure is uh, together in in a moment. So we've got we got two lines so far. We got our hashbang uh, Lisp, and then we got our set queue user put args. So now that we have our argument, we need to use that argument to get a random number, or as the upper limit for a random number generator. And uh, the the random number generation in Lisp can be done with a function called random. So we we should be able to do something like parentheses p print um, uh, parentheses right random and then random wants the upper limit of of how far it can go we know that that's user put so close parentheses close parentheses so we've just done in theory a dice roller that spoiler alert will not work um in three lines of code we've got our magic cookie line or whatever that first line is called we got set q user put args and then we got pprint random user put great we'll save that we'll go back to our our shell, we'll do a chmod plus x dice.lisp, and then we'll try to run it. Dot slash dice.lisp six. And it says random. Six is not a real number. Okay. So six, well, it, specifically it says random colon parentheses quote six close quote close parentheses is not a real number. So what that sounds like to me is that it's looking at that data that the user has given it six as an argument and it is interpreting that as maybe a string or something like that it's not seeing that as an integer that's what that's that's what it seems to me like so it turns out that when when you do the set q user put args it brings in the arguments and dumps it into a list and we could kind of confirm that for ourselves just by inserting a statement here p print well parenthesis p print space parentheses type p space user put and then we're going to just hazard a guess here that says single apostrophe list close parentheses close parentheses and we put that before it errors out at the end so that's the that's line number um whatever it is line number one two three that's line number three the fourth line being the pprint random user put okay so i'll try running this again and we get a true sign before we error out. So the user put is in fact a list. So we need to now, so I'm gonna get rid of that line, back to three lines of code. So we need to figure out now how to get an item out of a list, which we know, that's the nth function. But then we also need to know once we have that item from that list, how do we make sure that it's an integer and not a quoted string. Well, that's type conversion. That is taking a variable of one data type, in this case string, and converting it over to an integer. And you might know functions that do that, like a2i or however you do it in Python these days. I think you put, yeah, I think you'd str or rather int parentheses and then the string and then close parentheses, whatever. So that's the same kind of thing that we need to do here. And essentially, we're, we're, we're replacing our last couple of lines. So we're, I'm going to carve this back down to just the two lines. So I've got my hash bang, and then I've got my set queue user put args. So now I'll just make a new last line, which is going to be preprint, or sorry, parentheses, pprint space parentheses. There's going to be a lot of prints. Random space parentheses parse dash integer. That's the function to parse a string and transfer it into an integer data type. And then of course the integer that we want or the string that we want to transfer into an integer that we want is in this list. And we know how to access things from a list. So that's parentheses nth zero user put. And then we're going to close parentheses several times. So we're going to close it once, twice, thrice, four times total, closing that, that one line, four parentheses. So I have pprint parentheses pprint parentheses random parentheses parse dash integer parentheses nth zero user put 
parentheses, 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 parentheses. And you can kind of see that if you were to look at this code, which I'll paste into the show notes. You'll you'll see that because you, you and you kind of see the the way that it sort of ripples outward. So you you grab that zeroth item from your list, you parse it through the integer parser, and then you'd find you use the random function to find a number up to that number, and then you print the results. Simple as that, except of course it's still not going to work. But let's find out why. Dot slash dice dot lisp space six return and it gives me a two. Hmm, maybe I was wrong. Maybe it does work. Well, let's try it again. Dot slash dice dot lisp space six two again. What are the chances? Okay, well let's do it again. Dot slash dice dot lisp six two again. So I could do that a hundred times, and I would get two every single time. Might be different for you. I don't know how this works, but the the problem here is that the randomness hasn't been sort of um, hasn't been spawned. And if you've used random number, uh, ra- random yeah random functions in programming languages, then you may know that many, if not most, require the you the developer to to initiate a random seed at some point in the application before you actually use the random function. I don't remember if Python does, but I believe Pygame does. I could be mistaken on that one. I, Lua definitely does. Java definitely does. Lots of lots of things require you to do that sort of yourself. Others, I guess, probably kind of do it secretly behind your back when you invoke maybe the random function, possibly. But Lisp doesn't. You need to do it, and it's not that hard to do. You just do a parentheses set Q asterisk random dash state close asterisk parentheses make dash random dash state space t for true parentheses parentheses and you do that at any point in your application before you use your random function so i'm just doing it the line right before i use random i'm starting the random state save and close try it again so now i've done dot slash dice dot lisp space six and i got a zero back did it again got a four back, got a five back, got a one back, and so on. So five will be as as high as it ever goes. Uh, it will never hit six because six is the upper, it's non-inclusive upper limit. Like I say, you can probably do the um, mental exercise yourself to figure out how to get that to offset everything by one, but I'm not going to bother doing that myself. So that's a dice roller done successfully in four lines of code if we include that little magic cookie line or whatever it's called at the top. I'm going to make this a little bit more complex, probably needlessly, but just to kind of show probably, I mean, like this is, um, I mean, this is classic script. It's It's got your declaration of what to run the script in. That's C Lisp. And then it's got every step to take in a linear fashion. And that is that is what it will do every single time. And that works. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm just going to kind of, do one more version of this, one more iteration of this, using a function, just because it seems like that's the programmery kind of thing to do. So I'm going to get a new file called roller.lisp, and in this file I'm going to open up with my with my magic cookie again, so hash bang slash user slash bin slash clisp, and then instead of just doing everything in order, I'm going to do parentheses defun, D-E-F-U-N, space roller, space, and roller, again, is arbitrary. It could be anything. It could be called my roller. It could be called my dice roller, whatever. It's just a function name. So parentheses defund, space roller, space, parentheses num, N-U-M, close parentheses. And then on the next line, I'm going to put a trailing parentheses. Now, you don't have to do that. Um, necessarily you could save that for the end, but I I find, especially once you start using functions, it just helps to start scoping things out promptly. So before, when you end a line, make sure that, not necessarily on that line, but somewhere in your text file, you've got another parentheses to close that out, or else you'll start forgetting how many parentheses you need to close your stuff. So I just put a parentheses on the next line, knowing that that's the scope of my function. Okay, so... Next line, within my function here, I'm going to put parentheses pprint, parentheses random, parentheses parse-integer, parentheses int0num, 
parentheses, 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 parentheses. And then, of course, I've got that final parentheses already on my fifth line anyway, so I don't have to close that out. So that's my whole function. It is a roller function that accepts one argument, which is num, which doesn't exist yet, but there it is. And then once we're in the function, we do the parse, we, we do the extraction of an item from a list, which is going to be num once you get into the function. Uh, we, we parse it for in, to make it an integer, and then we random, we get a random number up to that value, and then we pretty print it. Okay, that's the function. Now that's not going to get executed ever if I don't call it. So it's just a function that's been defined in this script. It doesn't ever have to be used. There will be no errors. It, it won't care that a random seed has not been created because it's not, it's not actually being used. Now, of course, we want to use it, so we'll get there. But the next line in my script, I'll put set Q user put asterisk args close asterisk close parentheses. So that's me getting the arguments. And then I'll do a parentheses set Q asterisk random dash state asterisk parentheses make dash random dash state space t for true parentheses parentheses so that's just us starting the random seed and then the final line of my code is parentheses roller space user put close parentheses again this doesn't really make that much of a i mean th th this is such a small application that stuffing like our one deliverable line into a function really doesn't make any good sense i just wanted to demonstrate that sort of what a function would how the function would be separate from the from uh the rest of the code n normally in a in a real life application just just because i feel like a lot of times one learns scripting languages and one fails to learn sort of the advantage of like functions and stuff like that because that's just not part of of uh, of a recipe usually there's not a function but in programming, there are functions, you do them, and that's how that would work. You just get very much, when you start thinking of it sort of in programming terms, and you stop thinking of it as confusing Lisp with too many parentheses, it actually, it, it looks surprisingly normal. You you just, especially if you put, like, if you start putting parentheses on a separate line, and I don't know, you know, if, if a true Lisper would consider that a, a, a good thing to do, but that's how I do it, and it really does. It gives it structure, a familiar structure. You can indent to whatever degree you want. Again, Lisp doesn't actually care about your white space, so luckily you don't have to care about that space either. Um, and and yeah, it just it's kind of nice that way. So this one should work exactly the same as the other one, and I'm going to try that right now. I think I called it roller.lisp. And uh, let's do, well, let's do six to, yep, it gives me zero, and then three, and then three, and then one. Uh, let's give it a maximum of, let's say, 21. I got an 18, I got a three, I got a 14, I got a one, I got a zero, I got a four, and so on. So that's a little dice roller in Lisp, and three lines of, of really simple scripting or five lines with a slightly over-complex script with a function in it, and um, it's, it's runnable from Bash. So if your hesitation about Lisp has ever been, well, how can I run it without running Emacs, then check out Common Lisp. It, it's a normal-ish, like, you know, programming language. This has obviously been really basic. It, it's just talked about Lisp scripting, which that's just one side of it. You can compile Lisp code. You can compile it with a um, with a with a tool called ASDF into sort of dependency-free binaries that you can distribute to other people, and that it will run on their machine. I mean, you'll have to have your development environment set up and stuff, but yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot you can do with it. It's a it's a flexible language. You can do GUI as uh, programming with Lisp. Amazingly, the TCL TK library uh, can actually interface with Lisp, and frankly, there are even there's there's more than that out there. There's um, Fennel brings you a whole a whole a whole different set of tools because it compiles out to Lua, or is it the other way? Lua that compiles to Lisp. One of those two things. So that's really fascinating to, to witness. I've seen some things using that. There was a Lisp game jam last weekend at the time of this recording. You can go to itch.io slash, I don't know, game jams or jams and and witness all kinds of, of 
games written in Lisp. Um, it it makes no sense. Yeah, here it is. Itch.io slash jam slash autumn dash lisp dash game dash jam dash 2020. Or if you're in the northern hemisphere, this one makes sense to you. Itch.io slash jam slash spring dash lisp dash game dash jam dash 2021. And you'll see all kinds of um, games programmed in Lisp. It's really, really surprising, uh, some some of the stuff that's available out there. So if your impression of Lisp is, yeah, it's that thing sort of driving that arcane, confusing text editor, Emacs, or yeah, it's that thing that they used to use for really basic AI that's basically comical now, don't think of it that way. It, it's actually a, a pretty powerful language that is in active use on on lots of natural language processing applications, and it's just a general purpose, interesting language to get to get familiar with. So that has been GNU Common Lisp in the Slackware D for Development package. Hopefully, this has been educational, maybe even a little entertaining, and possibly, just possibly, a little bit inspiring. Go learn Lisp or not; it doesn't really matter. I, I don't care, but. You can if you want to. I've I had a really fun time learning what I've learned, and I do recommend uh, delving into it if you're at all curious. Just go either GNU Common Lisp or SBCL. Those are the two to, to check out first, I think. Okay, thanks for listening. Talk to you next time. Listening to the GNU World Order Og Cast. This has been Klaatu. You can reach me on IRC. I'm on the Freenode network usually in channels such as Og Cast Planet, Slacker Media, Slackware, a couple of others. My nick on IRC is not Klaatu. You can also reach me lately on Mastodon. My username there is at Klaatu at Mastodon.xyz. Of course, you can email me at klatu at member.fsf.org. That's klatu at member.fsf, as in free software foundation.org. And of course, you can visit my various websites, gnuworldorder.info and slackermedia.info. I will see you next time. While my senses are still my own, I must do what I set out to do.